BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey guys, Mario Lopez here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit biotoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness. Kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages, and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs, and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Why should I blame her that she filled my days with misery, or that she would of late have taught to ignorant men most violent ways, or hurled the little streets upon the great, had they but courage equal to desire? What could have made her peaceful with a mind that nobleness made simple as a fire, with beauty like a tightened bow, a kind that is not natural in an age like this, being high and solitary and most stern? Why, what could she have done, being what she is? Was there another Troy for her to burn? Hi there, hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv, that wordy woman who yells. Oh, Helen, 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 Helen. We're back today covering more of that mysterious woman, the woman behind the beauty. Who was she, beyond a pretty face that men deemed to be reason enough to start a war? 
the woman blamed for it all because it's easier to blame the woman than one's own failure, loss, toxic masculinity. Helen is fucking fascinating, but so is the world that seemed to revolve around her, whether she liked it or not. But before we get into Helen's continued story, I honestly can't remember what episode I've already announced this, or if I've already announced this because I've recorded a lot of things in advance, so if this isn't news, well, I guess you're hearing it again, or maybe this is for the first time? Who knows anymore? Regardless, I am very happy to announce a series of special episodes coming in January. If I haven't told you outright, I've hinted the hell out of it. And hey, maybe some of those episodes I've already recorded will continue to only hint at it as if I haven't already announced it. Frankly, I've gotten better about planning the episodes themselves, but evidently not the announcing of the episodes themselves. Spit it out, Liv. I am finally, finally covering the story of Atlantis. January 11th begins this special series, what will be a grand total of eight episodes, three of my standard, me telling you stories and things, three conversations with archaeologists all about the issue of Atlantis and pseudo-archaeology and the dark and unexpected underbelly of these things, and two, well, two super fun bonus episodes because how could I cover Atlantis and not talk about the Disney movie or the Assassin's Creed Odyssey DLC? I couldn't, obviously. The incredible Sarah Richard, the illustrator for both of my books, has even made some special Atlantis-esque artwork for the series. Seriously, I'm so pumped. I'm also preparing myself for the Atlantis truther trolls, it's sure to be quite the time. Deconstructing Atlantis is coming January 11th, a trailer coming January 1st. But now, Helen. Where did we last leave Helen of Sparta? Last week, I briefly reminded you of her origins, her time with Menelaus in Sparta and the arrival of Paris, the Trojan prince, who'd been told by the goddess of love herself that he should have Helen as his own, the most beautiful woman in the world. We talked about Helen and her own agency, whether she went of her own free will or otherwise, the consensus being we just don't know. The closest, best offer I've got to give you is she kind of went of her own free will, purely because the goddess of love had inflicted her with love for Paris. But in all of these stories of her, it seems to be that all love is inflicted by Aphrodite, and so still counts as free will, kind of. It's tough. Helen is tough. So little is about her as a person rather than her as an idea. Her as a beautiful woman who spurred the hearts of men to do horrible things. An idea which in itself is so broken. The men caused the war. The men went to war. They say it was for her, but it was for their own pride. It was because the loss of Helen was the loss of property. It was emasculating. Helen didn't start a war for all the blame she gets for it. This is episode 149, Beyond the Face That Launched a Thousand Ships, Helen of Sparta.
Was this the face that launched a thousand ships and burnt the topless towers of Ilium? That's Christopher Marlowe, of course, who coined the most common phrase used to describe Helen, the face that launched a thousand ships. There are ancient sources that mention a fleet of a thousand ships, but it's Marlowe who has them sail in the name of her beauty in that way. The poem I read at the top of the episode was William Butler Yeats, the early 20th century poet. It's ostensibly about a woman who rejected him, so he likened her to Helen in an incredibly gross way. With beauty like a tightened bow, a kind that is not natural in an age like this, being high and solitary and most stern, why, what could she have done, being what she is? Was there another Troy for her to burn? Oh yes, it was Helen who burned Troy, Yeats. That's some valid blame being placed there. (laughs) Whether this poem is about Helen or a woman who didn't want him, it's equally disturbing. Yeats sounds like one of those horrible men on the internet these days who blame women for their own shortcomings, who think they've got the most incredible personalities in the world, that they're true gentlemen, and it's only the fault of women that they're alone. Have I managed to connect Helen of Sparta with the modern incel movement? Apparently. Meanwhile, back in the ancient world, Seneca has some things to say about Helen in his play The Troades, The Trojan Women. You plague, holocaust, blight of both nations, see this graveyard of heroes and the naked bones lying all over, the plain unburied. Your nuptials strewed them, for you spurted Asia's blood, spurted Europe's, as you viewed dueling husbands, indifferent, unsure of your wish. Lovely. So often, this is how it's phrased, how it was seemingly understood by much of the ancient world, that Helen couldn't decide that if she did leave loving Paris, that that if she did leave loving Paris, that when she got there, she regretted it, or at least in part, and that she was left unsure which husband she preferred, that she is the cause of all the horror because she couldn't pick a man. This is, obviously, supremely dismissive of, well, basically all of the context. Regardless of whether it's true that she went with Paris and then found herself regretting leaving Menelaus, unsure of which of them to choose, even if that was the case, she didn't force the entirety of the Greek world to descend upon Troy, spending ten years trying to raise it to the ground before they finally succeeded. Those actions were not Helen's. As Bettany Hughes puts it in her book on Helen, quote, There are usually many contributory causes to international conflict, to the end of civilizations. The ancient Greeks needed only one, the promiscuity of a beautiful woman. So we've covered who Helen was before the war in her homeland of Sparta, but who was she during and after the war? The Helen of the Iliad has very few words to speak. She's referenced mostly in relation to Paris, who's often called the husband of lovely Helen. She's referenced because the war is happening so that the Greeks can take her back. And so in those cases, she's referenced as a prize to be sought after. Her and all the treasure she and Paris took with them from the palace of Sparta. Treasure that is believed to be Menelaus's as the king. But remember, Menelaus became king because he married Helen. She was the one who actually had Spartan blood. That, too, I believe, is unique to Sparta, that the line can pass through the woman, even if, in this case, it passes through the woman and straight into the man, who is then very much the ruler of the kingdom. But she, as a living, breathing human who's experiencing the exact same war as everyone else? That is rare. 
Very early in the Iliad, we have the scene I referenced last week, where she tells Priam of the Greeks assembled below, giving the king information on his adversaries, while Trojan elders look on, wondering whether she is special enough to have caused all of this. Later in the same section, Paris returns from one of his rare moments on the battlefield, and Aphrodite seeks to have Helen go find him in their bedroom. It's an interesting scene because obviously Aphrodite is involved, suggesting again that Helen's passion for Paris is influenced by the goddess, but also because, well, she stands up to Aphrodite in a way that feels very unique. For all Odysseus is guided by Athena during the Odyssey, he never turns to her and says, hey, Athena, what's up? Meanwhile, Helen? Well, obviously I'll quote it for you. Today, I'm using Caroline Alexander's translation of the Iliad because that feels only right. Aphrodite has just told Helen to go find Paris, that he's lying on the bed looking more like a dancer than a soldier. From there, Aphrodite's words, quote, stirred the anger in Helen's breast, and when she recognized the goddess's beautiful cheeks and ravishing breasts and gleaming eyes, she stood amazed and spoke out and addressed her by name. Mad one, why do you so desire to seduce me in this way? Will you drive me to some further place among well-settled cities, to Phrygia or lovely Meonia? Helen recognized Aphrodite immediately through her disguise, because she's disguised like all the gods do when they speak with humans, but Helen? Oh, she's caught on to the goddess of love. She calls her Mad One. Ugh, she's angry because she assumes that Paris has been killed by Menelaus, they'd gone to duel over Helen, and she thinks the goddess is taunting her, that she's threatening to, now that Paris is dead, bring her off to some f even further lands, cause another war in her name. She goes on, quote, Perhaps there too is some mortal man beloved by you, since now Menelaus has vanquished God like Paris and desires that I, loathsome as I am, be taken home. Is it for this reason you stand here now, conniving? Go, sit yourself beside him, renounce the haunts of the gods, never turn your feet to Olympus, but suffer for him, and tend him forever, until he makes you either his wife or his girl-slave. In this scene, Helen gets to be completely and utterly badass... And it is essentially the only scene in which she gets to do this, where she gets to stand up to the goddess of love and, though in more ancient Greek-sounding terms, tell her to fuck off. That the goddess has already done such damage, she won't be allowed to do anymore. Helen tells Aphrodite to go off and live as Helen has, to sit by some mortal man away from her home and her source of power, to suffer for him and tend him, and maybe in the end he'll make her his wife, at best, or his slave, at worst. It's an incredible scene, and I only wish there were more like it. But alas, the Iliad is concerned not only with the men going to war for Helen, over Helen herself, but as we all well know, it's concerned with the wrath of Achilles. If only we got to hear more from the woman at the center of it all.
Fortunately, the moment with Aphrodite isn't all that Helen gets in this book of the Iliad. After she talks back to Aphrodite, she is, unfortunately, but not unsurprisingly, chastised by the goddess pretty hard. I mean, we could have seen that coming, but I don't think it takes anything away from the kind of strength that comes from her speaking back to Aphrodite in the first place. Still, Helen leaves the goddess chastised before she does indeed find Paris in their bedroom. It wasn't a trick, as Helen thought. Paris had been brought back to the palace through divine intervention. He'd been losing the duel with Menelaus badly, and Aphrodite had whisked him off the battlefield like she would later do with her own son, Aeneas. Helen didn't know this, though, and last she'd seen Paris was about to be killed by Menelaus, and she'd been so upset that she'd left so she wouldn't have to witness it. Does that mean she really loved either of these men, truly, or does it just show how beholden she was to which one of them was her husband, as it determined her entire life? Having been chewed out by Aphrodite, Helen goes into her bedroom to find her husband, Paris, lying on the bed looking straight up sexy. This is obviously because of Aphrodite. Aphrodite is so involved in this scene that she physically carries a stool over for Helen to sit on, next to the bed where Paris is laying after his duel with Menelaus. Aphrodite's inclusion here, both in the physicality of the situation and the love and lust that accompanies it, is explicit, only adding more fuel to the question of, even if it was love, how much of it was free will and how much of it was divine intervention? Or still further, was there any such notion of love of free will rather than love from the goddess? Still, I'm mentioning this moment because Helen's fire wasn't abated by Aphrodite's chastising of her. It only moved on to a more worthy subject, one that was not divine and thus held no real sway in Helen's eyes. Taking the seat that Aphrodite had put out for her, Helen sits down at Paris's bedside and, quote, Averting her eyes, reviled her husband with her words. You're back from war? Would that you had died there broken by the stronger man, he who in time past was my husband. Yet before this you used to boast that you were stronger than Menelaus, beloved by Ares, in your courage and strength of hand and skill with spear. The woman knows how to cut deep, and I'm a bit obsessed with her in this moment, these scenes between her and Aphrodite and her and Paris. She goes on, quote, Go now and challenge Menelaus, beloved by Ares, to fight again face to face. But no, I recommend you give it up and not fight fair-haired Menelaus man to man or recklessly do battle, lest you be swiftly broken beneath his spear. She's basically calling Paris a wimp, that he's all talk and no action, that he doesn't really deserve to be her husband, and I am here for it. I'm no fan of Menelaus, but I'm absolutely here for Helen standing up for herself and telling Paris off. He is everything that she has said. Meanwhile, Paris, in response, basically tells her not to reproach him after their duel, that he'll certainly best Menelaus in another battle later in the war. But anyway, let's go have sex, he tells her. Quote, for never at any time has desire so overwhelmed my senses, not when I first carried you off from lovely Lacedaemon. And once again, there's Aphrodite in the room.
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey guys, Mario Lopez here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit biotoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness. Kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages, and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs, and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Helen in the Iliad has these very few brief moments of badassery where she stands up for herself and speaks her mind. We still don't necessarily know how she felt about anything, who she really wanted to be with, if she really wanted to be with either of them. But at the very least, she does, if only this once, have a strong voice in the matter. It's refreshing, because otherwise we have the alternative, the Helen of the Odyssey, who is interesting. Helen in the Odyssey is a bizarre creature full of contradictions and lacking much, if any, of the personality she shows here and or even in the earlier sources. She is another woman entirely. Helen appears in the Odyssey when Telemachus is going off in search of news of his father. He's sent by Athena, and after speaking with Nestor and Pelos, he arrives in Sparta to speak with Menelaus. He's welcomed, and they have a bit of a chat before Helen enters. Helen enters as the traditional woman. She has an entourage of women with her, and they're carrying all she needs in order to do some weaving. This is our first image of her, and it's making a point. Helen is now, having returned to Sparta with her first husband, the traditional wife. She's the wife she should have been all along. 
She then asks her husband if she can speak, a moment which in itself feels contradictory to the Helen we've just seen in the Iliad. She asks Menelaus if she should conceal her thoughts or speak. Then she notes that this man in front of her looks an awful lot like Odysseus's son, Telemachus, who he left when they went off to war. Menelaus agrees with her. Telemachus hasn't revealed his name just yet, so they're both intuiting that he is indeed Odysseus's son. The friend who's with him, Pisistratus, confirms Telemachus's identity. The men chat a bit, talking about sad things from the war and the lost Odysseus. They get emotional. This is when, we're told, Helen decides to make them drugs to take away their painful emotions. Quote, Whoever drinks this mixture from the bowl will shed no tears that day, not even if her mother or her father die, not even if soldiers kill her brother or her darling son with bronze spears before her very eyes. So now Helen is a practitioner of pharmaca? Who saw that coming? We're told that Helen learned these skills in Egypt, apparently having stopped there with Menelaus on their way back to Sparta after the war. Interestingly, that she was actually in Egypt all along and not in Troy is a theory from the ancient world, but obviously not a theory of the Iliad because there she is in Troy. Frankly, it doesn't really fit with my point anywhere, but I learned that it was a bizarre theory, so you're welcome. <laughs> Once Helen has administered these drugs to her husband and the young Telemachus, she speaks. She says that she will entertain them with a story, not about whatever challenges Odysseus may have been or is enduring, but what he did during the war. She tells the men that Odysseus snuck into the walls of Troy disguised as a poor old beggar. A bit of foreshadowing there for later in the Odyssey. She says she recognized him, that she cleaned him up a bit, but that she didn't tell the Trojans who he was. And as he was leaving Troy with information from the inside, he killed many Trojans. Quote, The Trojan women keened in grief, but I was glad. By then I wanted to go home. I wished that Aphrodite had not made me go crazy when she took me from my home and made me leave my daughter and the bed I shared with my fine, handsome, clever husband. Who is this Helen? This Helen practices pharmaca, suddenly she's known for her ability to make drugs to take away pain and make one forget all their sorrows. This Helen wanted to go home to Troy to be with her fine, handsome, and clever husband. This Helen makes very clear that it was Aphrodite pulling the strings. But again, is it not then Aphrodite pulling the strings for her love of Menelaus? Or does she not really love him, just sees in him a more appealing life for herself? This Helen is so odd and curious. She feels wrong, like she's been tacked on later as a way to ensure that the character who'd been made so famous for her sexuality, for what they saw as her choice to run off with a handsome Eastern prince, that that character is redeemed in their eyes, turned back into the simple, clever wife whose role it is to be kind to guests and to help her husband. Still, this odd section goes on. Once Helen has spoken of this story of Odysseus, Menelaus adds his own. He tells everyone that he well remembers Helen's role during the end of the war, that it was she who went around the wooden horse of Troy, knocking on the sides and calling in to the Greeks, imitating their own wives' voices when she called their names. 
He says she was being accompanied by a Trojan, Diphobus, and the Greeks were nearly given away inside the horse, if it weren't for Odysseus inside keeping them quiet before Athena, in disguise, called Helen away. Which then begs the question, did Helen want to go home by that point then? She just said that she did want to go home, and her story of Odysseus and Troy must come before Menelaus' story of the Trojan horse, but it suggests that she wanted to find the Greeks in the horse, that she wanted to give the Trojans the upper hand. So did she want to go home or not? And, well, that's it for the Helen of the Odyssey. Looking back, I'm really starting to agree that the first four books of the Odyssey feel really tacked on, like additional notes to a story that didn't need them. That Helen plays such a role in both the Iliad and the Odyssey, for all the Trojan War was depicted as almost entirely about her, seems to me so indicative of the oral storytelling nature of these works. Maybe she originally had a much bigger role. I imagine when the songs were sung in Sparta, she absolutely had a bigger role. What more of Helen did they know back then? What did they sing about her that we don't have now? Since it's very likely that these works weren't actually written down into the form that we have them until the 6th century Athens, what influence comes from that simple fact? Helen was not an Athenian heroine, though she was important, so what did they decide wasn't necessary in the story about the war over her? Meanwhile, why did what little we have of her in the Iliad change so much when it shifted to the Odyssey? She goes from a strong woman standing up to a goddess and her new husband, one who helps the Trojans and seems to like living there with them, to a woman who says she simply decided she wanted to go home to Sparta one day, in the midst of it. Did she decide that, or at least say she decided that, after Paris' death? In later works, she even had another Trojan husband by the time the war is actually over, So perhaps by then she realized her life would just be so much better and easier with Menelaus back in her homeland of Sparta. Or maybe she just missed home, missed her daughter, which meant that Menelaus was the only answer. This domestic, soft-spoken, and deferential Helen of the Odyssey is just someone else entirely. She and Menelaus live together as though nothing has happened. They speak to each other as husband and wife, as if everything about their relationship is and has been 100% normal. It's bizarre. When we look beyond the texts themselves of the Iliad and the Odyssey and what's explicitly or not so explicitly said within them, there's a lot to be said about Helen as a character affected by the passage of time, not in her story, but in the historical reality that surrounded it. There's what I mentioned earlier about the Iliad and the Odyssey being by nature epic poems that changed and evolved, and then there's 
Helen was a queen of Sparta, which, from a historical perspective, was pretty unique for the region and the period. The period being generally the Bronze Age, the accepted time period for when the Trojan War would have happened if there were a Trojan War, or when we imagine it for the mythology. Anything equivalent that might have spurred on the story. I don't really have an opinion on what could and could not be real, but regardless, the Bronze Age is a period we use to discuss these mythological people and their lives. Because of this, the character of Helen is influenced by a number of different time periods. Yes, the original notion of these characters is that they were Bronze Age heroes in a Bronze Age war caused by the Bronze Age woman, Helen. But because the Iliad and the Odyssey are part of the oral tradition, they've been influenced by more time frames than just the Bronze Age. The stories were being told by traveling bards for probably at least a couple of hundred years before they were finally written down in likely the 6th century Athens. That alone suggests influence of archaic Athens, like I mentioned, a world that would have been very, very different from the Bronze Age. It makes me wonder about her as a person, the blame placed upon her for the war, and most notably the Helen of the Odyssey, the woman who's somehow become the ideal queen and housewife for her original husband back in Sparta in the intervening years since the war. That Helen alone is a big old question mark for me. So did she get added later? I'm definitely not the first to suggest that the first few books of the Odyssey, those awkward sections where Telemachus is traveling around on order from Athena, seeking news of Odysseus, might have been tacked on later. I think it was my recent guest, Joel Christensen, who mentioned it, but I feel like even that wasn't the first mention I've heard. To me, it checks out. The Helen of those moments feels like an entirely different Helen than the one in the Iliad, and a much, much less appealing character. But beyond that, even, there's some fascinating pieces to her character and story when you look at her as a Spartan, rather than a woman from almost anywhere else in the ancient Greek world. I briefly mentioned it, that Helen's marriage was notable because Menelaus became king of Sparta, because he married her, but I've since learned more. Sarah Pomeroy, in her book that's listed in the episode's description, notes that not only was it notable and pretty specific to Sparta that Menelaus became king from his marriage to Helen, but she clarifies some things about this that are fascinating. So first, the way to describe this is that Sparta was both matrilineal and matrilocal. This means that the royal line in Sparta was tied to the woman and not the man. I can't quite find whether this was all historical or time period or just mythological, but regardless, Sparta was a place where women had a hell of a lot more rights and control than at least Athens, if not more regions. We don't have much in the way of evidence of women beyond Sparta and Athens, unfortunately, so it's tough to say. Still, at least in this world of the Iliad, Sparta was matrilineal and matrilocal, meaning that whoever Helen married got to be king of Sparta. Menelaus moved to Sparta to take the kingship when he married her. He was the one changing his life for his marriage rather than the woman. This also suggests that the motivations for the war itself might have been more than just a man's wounded ego and its inherent ties to toxic masculinity. It could have been that Menelaus's kingdom was at stake. Would he have been allowed to remain king of Sparta with his Spartan wife off married to another man. 
Still, Pomeroy's points about this also extend to Clytemnestra. Clytemnestra came from Sparta. She's Helen's sister. And though she did move to Mycenae when she married Agamemnon, she still held more power than the other women of the story. Agamemnon left a man to watch over Clytemnestra while he was gone, and she promptly removed that man from his post and took up with Aegisthus, Agamemnon's rival. Of course, this was because Agamemnon had killed their daughter, Iphigenia, for that bit of wind that we all well remember, but that she had the right to do this says something about her rights as a Spartan woman. So what about real Spartan women, then? I would love to devote more on this. I need to find a guest to come on and talk Spartan women. But in the meantime, Bettany Hughes makes some interesting points in her book on Helen. Spartan women, at least from the period when we have evidence, I'm assuming that's all classical because that tends to be the case, were given the same food rations, they were allowed to drink unwatered wine, they were trained and strengthened like the boys, they could control their own lives economically. They got to marry later in life than women of Athens. They were trained in music and poetry. Basically, they could do and have everything that Athenian women couldn't. They even worshipped Helen as a symbol of the strength and sexuality of women. Most of what we have from ancient Greece comes from Athens, and because of that, our viewpoint is often entirely skewed towards Athenians. They're the ones who had a democracy, yet so often it's attributed to all of ancient Greece. They're the ones who treated their women like possessions and objects, and honestly, I'm, I'm personally often guilty of connecting all women of ancient Greece with the Athenian ones. Who knows how the others got to live, but at least we know that Spartan women had a hell of a lot more power and control and skill. Spartan women were fucking badass. Helen was a fucking badass, even if... So much of how we see and think of her was likely influenced from elsewhere. I mean, who knows what the Athenians changed when they finally wrote the Iliad down. I will happily think of Helen as a woman who just wanted to follow her own path, whatever that meant. She was strong and independent and a Spartan ancestor whose badassery would pass through the ages. Ugh, nerds, thank you so much for listening. Helen is so fascinating, and honestly, I feel as though I've only scratched the surface. Bettany Hughes has an entire enormous book on her, and I've only been able to read bits and pieces of it to prepare for these two episodes. There's just so much more! So I hope to revisit Helen eventually and to cover the play about her by Euripides. But for now, we'll leave Helen to rest, having at least taken some of the blame off of her. Truly, it's only misogyny and toxic masculinity that could take a story like this and manage to blame her for the entirety of the Trojan War and all the horrors that it caused. Yes, one woman doing what she wanted could surely be the ultimate cause for the fall of an entire culture, as if these men wanted to give women that much power. The goddess of love, meanwhile, if we've learned anything, it's that Aphrodite wields more power than she's ever given credit for. Still, she didn't cause it either. The fragility of these men, that's what caused the fall of Troy. Not a pretty face and not the goddess of love. 
next week. I'm bringing you a couple of reading episodes in place of narrative ones so that I have time to prepare the wild ride that is this Atlantis series, in addition to, well, maybe, hopefully, being able to enjoy a bit of the holiday season, too. I've read He Seeds Theogony, a thing I've quoted so many times in bits and pieces, but reading it out loud, I realized how much of it I haven't shared with you at all. And it's just fucking bananas bonkers. It, it is amazing. It was so much fun. Nothing will compare to reading Paris's Heroides letter, though, but this came close. But first, on Friday, I've got a conversation coming that's all about the Kalon Kakon, the beautiful evil, and how it's applied to women in Greek myth, including Helen herself. Please don't forget to ask your questions for the New Year Q&A episode, both because I want to answer your questions and because I won't be able to write a 5,000 word script in time. Atlantis episode one, just the first one, is over 7,000 words, so I've got my work cut out for me. Questions can be submitted at mythsbaby.com questions. There's a super easy form for you to fill out. Thank you all. As always, this has been a very incredible year for me and the podcast. It's grown so much. It's becoming something so incredibly cool and fun and educational with the growth of my conversation episodes. And fuck, I couldn't be more happy to be bringing you all of this fascinating knowledge and these incredible stories. I have the coolest job in the world and I have it all thanks to you guys. So truly, thank you all so much for listening. I'm really so grateful. You are all the absolute best for real. I'm Liv and I love this shit. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey guys, Mario Lopez here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit biotoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness. Kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages, and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts. 
as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs, and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day.